0: Hello. Oh, hi, Mom. Hi, Andrew. Everything okay there?
1: Everything's fine. So I sent you the tape of my interview with Mike Kajewski. Yes. What, uh, what would you say people are in for in this episode?
0: Well, I, I found it amazing that what they're doing, they can do uh, to include cybersecurity inside a medical device that's implanted in a person is just beyond what I could imagine would happen. It kind of reminded me of this Elon Musk talk that you described on one of your Medium articles a couple of years ago, where he was saying that there's a new need for energy in this country because what we have is causing some bad results. And then he has the answer, which is his large batteries. Mm -hmm. There's so much good in the world that we can accomplish, and yet we're stymied by all the bad. What do you mean? All the bad—the virus, president—you could take that out if you want.
1: You're saying like this is good, but it's not really balancing out all that bad stuff.
0: Yeah, it's too bad. There's all that bad stuff because we have the potential for doing so much good. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.
1: I'm Andy Raskin, and this is The Bigger Narrative. In each episode, I talk with leaders about their strategic narrative, story they're telling that's bigger than their companies and their products, story about change in their customers' world, story that drives success in sales, marketing, fundraising, recruiting, product, everything. And my guest this time, as my mom says, one of the good guys, is Mike Kajewski, CEO of MedCrypt. Based in San Diego, MedCrypt makes it easy for medical device makers to ship products with cutting-edge cybersecurity just by adding a few lines of code. Not long after Mike raised MedCrypt Series A, he realized he had a big narrative challenge. He told me about going to pitch a prospect where he basically said, listen, your medical devices are connected to the internet now. They're subject to attack. Why not outsource security to us? And
2: the company that we talked to said, hey, this sounds really great. But we already have really smart engineers internally who, you know, they can do security. And I realized that I was positioning us against the engineering team inside the company. And that wasn't the right way to, to frame the conversation. Mm-hmm. We had to be very deliberate about how we were framing MedCrypt, the company, and the medical device cybersecurity problem, because it did not fit neatly into any of the existing marketing paradigms that I had seen previously which is why, you know, shameless plug for your work, why that when I read the blog post, the greatest sales think I've, I've ever seen, it was about, the, you know, this this big change in the world idea is exactly what we need to to have these, uh, to have meaningful conversations with prospective customers.
1: Mm. One of the big things that teams tell me they struggle with, and of course I struggle with when I'm working with teams, is naming this shift, uh, what I've come to call the old game and the new game. And you're... Uh, example was really interesting because I remember we had this question, you know, should it be that the new game is, you know, medical device security? It seemed like that was a little bit too old of a story.
2: Yeah, so over a, a relatively short period of time, for 18 months or so, we saw an evolution in the reaction that we were getting from medical device vendors when we would talk to them about our product and this problem. In mid-2016, 2016 the reaction would generally be, you know, medical device security is not a thing; nobody cares about this. Or it would be, yeah, this is a thing, but we totally have it covered, right? By mid 2017, the FDA had put out some guidance documents around medical device security and had made it very clear that yes, this is a thing. So device vendors could could no longer say, hey, medical device security is not a thing. Uh, what we started to hear in 2017 is oh yeah, this is a thing and we we have it covered because we are doing X. And generally, X was something that a security expert would deem as being, let's say, insufficient generously, right? It could be, oh, well, we have passwords in our devices, so we're doing security. We we would literally hear device managers tell us things like that. And then by mid-2018, the FDA came out with very detailed guidance documents around what sorts of security features needed to be in medical devices. And that's when we started to hear medical device vendors say, yes, product security is a thing and, yes, we have done some things, but we've identified some gaps with what the FDA has asked for, which is X, Y, and Z. So. We we couldn't any longer in early 2019, when we had the opportunity to work with you, we could no longer just say like, hey, the, the enemy is not doing anything around product security because most device vendors would say they were doing something. Mm-hmm, so we mm-hmm. needed a slightly more nuanced way of saying, hey, the old way was doing X and the new way is, is doing Y. And man, doing it the new way is really tough unless you got the right tools. Right.
1: Instead of, like you said, not doing anything versus doing something in security, it's uh, a more updated story, that is, you were playing the security game this way, and now it has to be played this way. What what is the old game and new game that you landed on?
2: And by the way, what we will think in ten years when we look back on this positioning and say, was this the right, you know, the right positioning? We're still relatively early on in adopting this, but we we've definitely had a marked change in responses from. Customers when we talk to them using this framing, so I think it's I think we're on, on a really good path. What we saw is that previously, medical device vendors would ship a connected medical device to their customer, and they would assume that their customer was going to be securing this thing, and that might mean putting a firewall on the network or uh, changing the configuration of the medical device to keep this thing secure. But ultimately, it was it was really the customer's problem. There's a bunch of reasons why I think device vendors took that approach. But the, the most obvious is it's sort of the lowest friction, right? Like, yeah, security is a thing, but hospitals have this covered. They need to secure their email servers so they can secure their CT scanner as well. Mm. So the old way was really just shipping this device to a, a customer, letting them secure it. And only if there was some really egregious security uh, vulnerability in your device, would a device vendor really react to this situation and and, and do something to change it. And what we saw were hospitals, in particular, this, the one, one hospital, the Mayo Clinic, was very active in going out and talking to medical device vendors and saying, listen, we're going to be testing every single device we buy, and if the security test fails, we're not buying your device, or we'll buy it and we'll give you, you know, a year to remedy the situation. So what we saw is that it was really going to be medical device vendors that were proactively addressing the security concern that were going to not only satisfy hospitals like the Mayo Clinic, but they were going to exceed their expectations. So the paradigm that we settled on was the old way was a reactive approach to security. You ship your device, you see if there's any problems, and if there are problems, you fix them if somebody really makes you fix them. The new way to do medical device security is proactively. You build features in before you even ship this device so that when it gets to your customer, your customer doesn't really even need to do that much to secure it. And uh, if there is some sort of issue, you are going to know about it before your customer does. That's what we call proactive mm-hmm. security.
1: So I've talked about MedCrypt's narrative now in a, in a bunch of posts and, and uh, interviews. And one of the things people uh, really latch onto a lot is the slide you guys have about how this shift changes the game for various different personas. One of the big questions I get is how to make the narrative make sense for different personas?
2: Yeah, we had that exact question for you when we were going through crafting this narrative. And at the time, I would have generated three separate slide decks, right? One for somebody who is a CIO type, who's an, an executive, who's not really in the code a separate slide deck for an engineer who's actually writing the code, mm-hmm. and then a separate slide deck for somebody who is a regulatory compliance person. So I would have said, okay, we need three different slide decks, three three different pitches. But one of the things that was so insightful that you brought to the conversation was, well, no, it's it's the same message for all three stakeholders. It's just that the way this change in the world uh, affects each of these stakeholders is, is unique. And we can talk to that in the slide deck. For, for example, in, in the case of those three personas that I mentioned previously, somebody who's in charge of the p for the business needs to understand, well, how much is it going to cost me if, if there's a security issue? You know, What is the probability of this happening times? How much is it going to cost? How big of a financial problem is this for us? For an engineer who needs to now build security features into a medical device. They need to understand how this is going to impact their development timelines because Hmm. development Hmm. timelines were were tight before. But now you've got this whole additional set of new features you need to implement. How are you going to implement these new features on top of all of the other things you wanted to do and still get a product to market? And then for a regulatory compliance person, a, a medical device vendor who has not taken a proactive approach to security, just sees this regulatory compliance as a burden, right? Something they need to do. It costs them a lot of money, but they have to do it. It's a necessary evil. If the company takes a proactive approach to security, that same regulatory compliance person can now actually help in the sales process, right? Because the information that they're providing can delight the prospective customer and say, "Hey, not only do we take security seriously, look at all of this stuff that we're doing for you." Mm-hmm. So we, we wanted to speak to the the impact that this new change in the world had to each of those those stakeholders. Uh, individually. I, I will say, however, that that particular slide has been much more useful for us internally in planning a conversation with a, a customer, right? The hour before a sales call starts, we're going through and figuring mm-hmm. out which, mm-hmm. which, which buyer persona is this, which slide should we focus on. Mm. And during the presentation itself, Unless you have all three of those stakeholders in the same room, we generally kind of skim over that slide. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Where you have a sort of mixed audience of personas or you don't know who the audience is, a big crowd where you don't know exactly the titles of the folks who are there. It's helpful. But if you know exactly who you're talking to, maybe you just tailor the talk uh, already, but either way, this high-level shift in the world is the glue that holds everything together. And then, what you're doing is you're tailoring the impact of that to the person you're talking to.
2: Exactly. A common sales process for us is we get an initial conversation with one person who's sort of sort of forward-thinking about security inside mm-hmm. the organization. Mm-hmm. We have a quick call that's you know 15 or 20 minutes, and they say, "Okay, great. Can you send me a slide deck that I can circulate internally to our team, and then we'll we'll get back to you." Yeah. Well that person is going to circulate this information to a bunch of engineers to somebody in the executive team to somebody in the RAQA team and it's you know we don't want to send them three different slide decks and say well if the person's an engineer send them slide deck 1 right uh, what we want to do is send it with that slide so that when the reader gets to slide number i think it's 7 they can say okay how does this impact my job my job is P L. and they can look at okay. that table and say oh I'm an exec I'm you know here's how th- this security change in the world affects my particular mm-hmm. role Mm
1: -hmm. I don't know if you want to talk about this, and I'll I'll cut it out if you don't, but you've told me that you've had some challenges around getting new salespeople to embrace this
2: style of selling. Yeah, it's not just salespeople. It's it's anybody on our team who has been involved in any sort of customer-facing discussions previously. Mm -hmm. They're very much used to the conversation being either positioning us against a competitor, or highlighting the dollars that we can save or the time that we can save to market. And all of those things are important, but most people who have been involved in customer facing conversations are not used to leading with this sort of story arc. Hey, the world is changing. Every medical device is connected to the internet. And guess what? There's bad people out there who want to use security vulnerabilities to make those devices do things that they weren't designed to do. And here's how it's gonna impact your business. Hmm. So we've had to be very deliberate about getting people on board with this notion that, hey, we're not pitching just the MedCrypt feature set. We're pitching this change in the world and the philosophy of addressing this problem proactively. And if we can get the person on the other end of the call to uh, say, yeah, exactly, this is uh, something that we need to address proactively. Uh, and there's there are gaps between what we do today and what you know the FDA wants to see. If we can get to them to that point, then the rest of the sales conversation is a piece of cake. Mm
1: -hmm. And and how has that gone? Have you gotten them to that point? Uh, Do they say, yes, that's what we're seeing too? How is that going?
2: I'd I'd say it's going very well. Over the last three months, our biggest problem has been the coronavirus pandemic has Mm -hmm. adversely impacted everybody's timelines. So it's very Mm -hmm. difficult to understand what delays Mm -hmm. are due to COVID and organizational issues versus how a customer is perceiving our products. But let's say in the time immediately before COVID, I would say that our sales conversations were four times better in early 2020 than they were in early 2019. Mm -hmm. There could be a lot of reasons for that, but I think a lot of it is the way that we frame this story. Mm. I'm I'm a big fan of Chris Voss's book, uh, Never Split the split the Difference, me too, yeah. And getting them to, yeah, that's right. In fact, my wife will regularly say, you're using Chris Voss on me again. So my, my wife is now onto the game. I can no longer use Chris Voss on my wife. <laughs> but getting the customer to say, yeah, I, I see this problem the same way you do. We're on the same team. All of a sudden, they become a champion for you internally. And you know, every other enterprise sales methodology involves having a champion internally. And this is a great yeah. way to, to get the champion. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of uh, how good of a job have we done in using the old world, new world positioning as we talk to customers, I'd give us a solid A minus, room for improvement, but we're we're doing great on it. In terms of getting all of our employees on board with, you know Adopting this as the way that we talk to to customers, I, I'd give myself a B on that. We're we're doing great on it, but it it is very tempting to fall back to you know what are you using today? How much do you spend on that? You know, mm-hmm. We can do it for less, or mm-hmm. how long is it taking you to do this on your own internally? We can do it faster. Um, but so so overall, it's it's gone quite well, but we still have work to do. Uh-huh. One of the things that that I found is uh, we we have one particular prospective customer where uh, we have a very good relationship with the engineering team. And someone on on our team made contact with somebody in the executive team at this company, just sort of like you know, at a conference or something. And we ended up having a call with the executive team about medical device product security. And the executive team at the end said, oh, you're already talking to so-and-so in engineering. Let me go talk to them. And I, I was really concerned that the engineering team would see us as having gone above their heads, you know, bringing in a bunch of you know pointy-haired managers into something when they didn't want them there. But it turns out that uh, the engineer came back to me and said, "Hey, you know, I talked to my boss's boss's boss about security and about how you, how MedCrypt fits into that, and I've been trying to get." these corporate types to see the light on product security for years. I don't know what you told them to get them on board, but I'm very happy to now have them being supportive Mm -hmm. of building devices that are secure by design. So I I think that back to the common messaging about the old world versus new world, the unique impacts it might have on somebody based upon their role Mm -hmm. was was really helpful in aligning Mm -hmm. that organization internally.
1: Hmm. That's fascinating. What would you recommend for other CEOs as they think about crafting the narrative? What were some things that you found particularly difficult or surprising or, or interesting as you went through that?
2: As an engineer at heart, right? I have I an have undergrad and a master's degree in physics. I'm very much a, a technical person at heart. I would have told you five years ago that all we needed to do at MedCrypt to be successful is build the best product in this market. I build the product that works the best and we will be the most successful. And on some level, that's the way that engineers wish the world operated. Unfortunately, that that's not the way the business world tends to work. And you know, there's lots of discussions about Betamax versus VHS and the right technology winning and, and stories like that. But I I did not appreciate the degree to which the story about the problem we're solving and the company we are building is integral to, to our success. And we sort of lucked out in getting a good story in the beginning because we were working in a space that very few people had thought about. Very few people had thought about the idea that their pacemaker is connected to the internet and can be hacked. So there's just this this sort of visceral reaction like, oh, I had never thought of it. That's crazy. Tell me more. Um, but it's it's really only because we had a good story about how the world was changing around, you know, healthcare technology being connected to the internet that we had, that we got any any traction early on. Hmm. So if you're a, a founder who's building a, a new product, it's very tempting to think about how is this product better than what's out there on the market? And why should somebody use this instead of something else? When in reality, people make buying decisions or using decisions for much more emotional reasons. And it's very, very important to have your, your story hmm well thought out very early on in the life of the company. This isn't a marketing problem that you need to address in year five. This is fundamental to the way that you grow your company. Mm. And if you don't have a good story, you're not going to be able to build a great company. Yeah.
1: Your competition is not really companies doing the same thing. It's the buyer doing nothing. Right. And which is to say the buyer spending their resources on addressing other things. It's really about the urgency is what you're saying. Am I getting that wrong to, to use a Chris Voss technique?
2: <laughs> That's right. Um, Excellent. And it's a bit of a, a, a cliche at this point, but if you think about Elon Musk and Tesla and you know electric vehicles at large, every time I read one of these articles that say like, hey, Tesla's in trouble because all of these other companies are coming out with electric vehicles, I just laugh at, at how people are missing the point. Right. The point isn't that... Elon is building a better EV than General Motors can. The competition for Tesla isn't GM or Ford or Volkswagen. The competition is people continuing to use, you know, internal combustion engine cars forever and and burning fossil fuels to to get around. Yeah. I, I would bet that Elon would say GM and Volkswagen both come out with 400 plus mile vehicles. That's great for all of us because there'll be better charging infrastructure. People won't be afraid of electric vehicles. It's really tempting to just think of your competition as being the other companies operating in the space. Mm-hmm. But for markets that are emerging or markets that don't fully exist yet, other companies operating in your space can actually be a net positive to you. If you correctly position yourself against the status quo and not those other companies. Great.
1: Thanks so much for sharing all this, Mike. And it it does sound like you may be on a path to kind of evolving this narrative. Uh, Maybe we check in in a while and see where it's gone. That
2: sounds great. I'd love to.
1: I love it, of course, when any CEO says, as Mike did, that the narrative is not just a marketing thing, but really fundamental to how you run your company. But I think the more subtle and maybe more useful point from our conversation is that sometimes you have to update the story. When Mike went in and said the new game was medical device security, prospects said, thanks, but we're already playing that game. So he updated the story by reframing it around old and new approaches to cybersecurity the old game being a reactive, minimum effort, one that hospitals will no longer accept, and the new one that winners are playing, a proactive, comprehensive approach that's harder, and MedCrip can help. The Bigger Narrative is produced and edited by me, Andy Raskin, with music by Stephen Emerson, and podcast cover art by Angela Mae Chen. Carla Borelli inspired the show by telling me I should do it over coffee, Thanks to Mike Kajewski, Vidya Murthy, the COO at MedCrypt, who has let me reference her presentations in countless LinkedIn posts and podcast interviews, and everyone else at MedCrypt. Special thanks also to Judy Raskin, Andrew Mason, and the team at Descript. They don't sponsor me. I just love their audio editing software. Michelle Miller, Victoria Zenoff, Scott Rummery, and Carol Wasserman. And remember, the company's story is the company's strategy.
0: I don't know why it brought me there, but I mean, it's amazing when companies like this think about these things and can develop it and know how to go about it. I think we can train more people to figure out some more wonderful things that can be developed.